0: You're listening to the Physics Ed Podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments, and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom. Yes, welcome again for the Physics Ed
1: Podcast. Glad to have you again for another chat around STEM. And in this particular case, we're hanging out with a very good friend of mine, Jason Robertshaw, who's a programs manager for virtual learning at the Marine Laboratory and Aquarium, which is in Sarasota, Florida. I have loved and followed what Jason's done for many, many years. He is a distance learning extraordinaire expert. I kid you not. Tap him on the shoulder. He really knows what he's doing. But also, he's highly passionate about marine science education. He is a certified Florida Master Naturalist and instructor. And he's heavily involved as a board member of the Florida Marine Science Educators Association. And he's part of the advisory board for the Center for Interactive Learning and Collaboration. Highly varied skill set jason brings to this chat so if you love your marine sciences if you've been wondering about how might i teach marine sciences to our grade levels of different ages jason is the guy to tap on his shoulder so
0: let's dive right in this is the physics ed podcast we're all about science ed tech and more to see 100 fun free experiments you can do with your class go to physicseducation.com.au that's physics spelled F I double Z I C S and click 100 free experiments.
2: Hey, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Oh, mate. I'm really
1: happy to have you here. Especially that look, we've been, we've known each other for a bloody long time. <laughs> I just realized, yeah. um,
2: just I think I first ran into uh, you,
1: 2014, I think.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right. CILC. At, were you in uh, Indianapolis or where did we have that conference where we first had the PEC meeting? I think we were in
1: Atlanta when I first came across. Uh, uh, no, no, that that might have been actually Philadelphia.
2: Yeah, that's right. Philadelphia.
1: It was Philadelphia. How about that? Actually, I remember that. I remember actually holding, we, um, we were all in, in one room um, and the site where we were at, we're doing um, distance learning stuff. And for some reason, we couldn't get through the firewalls and things. I think there's a picture of me holding my laptop, trying to present a PowerPoint because it would not talk to the data projector or something like that. <laughs> it's kind of, it's, uh, it's <laughs> kind of funny.
2: And nothing's uh, changed, still that way.
1: Yeah, it is like that way. It's all also gaffer tape, really, a lot of this digital stuff. But look, mate, thank you for popping on. I mean, I mean okay, clearly, guys, I know Jason quite well. Uh, however, perhaps you don't. So Jason, just let everyone know what you get up to.
2: Yeah, so I'm actually speaking to you from Sarasota, Florida. Uh, we're about 60 miles south of Tampa. And uh, I work at a little marine laboratory here called Moat Marine Lab, and we also are a public aquarium, uh, open 365 days of the year. And uh, we got our start actually all the way back in the 1960s with a really remarkable, actually 1950s, with a really remarkable woman named Dr. Eugenie Clark. Uh, she got uh, uh, famous in the pages of National Geographic for her shark research. And uh, she was one of the first scientists to actually study sharks in a serious and systematic way. And uh, she had the opportunity to open a small lab in uh, South Florida uh, back in 1955. And uh, we've since grown uh, from those early uh, humble beginnings uh, to have over 20 research programs here. Uh, we study everything from coral reefs to uh, Cyrenian, uh manatee uh, biology. You might be more familiar with their relatives, the dugongs over there in Australia. And uh, we also study uh, fisheries biology, sea turtle biology, a whole host of things that are available to us here on the southwest coast of Florida.
1: Oh, fantastic. You would have seen a massive change of things as the hurricanes come through.
2: Yep. In fact, uh, here in Florida, we have a phenomenon called red tide. Uh, it's a little tiny microalgae called uh, Carinia brevis. It's a dinoflagellate. And it's native to the Gulf of Mexico, where we're located. Uh, but uh, whenever it comes in close to shore, and it is also fed by a lot of nutrients, we end up getting something called a harmful algal bloom. And uh, the particular lifestyle of this microorganism is that it produces a small neurotoxin, uh, but at the volumes of a harmful algal bloom, it, it becomes quite deadly both to sea life and can also affect humans, that especially affects people with breathing difficulties when they get close to shores that are affected by these places. And during the hurricane events we had locally, uh, we've actually had some uh, evidence uh, still uh, examining it all, uh, but all that nutrients and wash and runoff from the uh, hurricane events um, uh, did end up having an effect on the sea life uh, through the forms of red tide. Now, uh, fortunately for me and for mo- uh, most of that uh, major impacts of those particular hurricanes happened a little bit further south of us. And so we got uh, a little bit of wind damage but nothing major to our facilities. Unfortunately, a lot of folks uh, further south had their entire uh, communities uh, removed and devastated. Wow, so. yeah.
1: and yeah, and um, yeah, and that's often the case. Especially when we run a program about natural disasters, eventually it's people involved. And uh, yeah, it's a, you know, sorry to hear that. You, know, you likely would know some people heavily affected. But um, I did pick up on one thing you just said. Uh, I didn't realize that people with breathing difficulties just going near shore to a red tide would have an issue. I like how we just learn these things all the time.
2: Yeah, that little uh, neurotoxin is actually hydrophobic. It doesn't like to be dissolved in water, so it uh, very quickly adheres to any air bubbles or anything that uh, can get it uh, away from the uh, water. And uh, air bubbles, of course, rise to the surface, and when they get up there, they pop right up the surface, so that layer right at the surface becomes highly concentrated with that neurotoxin, which makes it difficult for things like uh, dolphins and sea turtles and manatees to breathe. Uh, but then it also comes into shore, gets mixed up with wave uh, and wind energy, and uh, gets mixed up into the surf. And so the uh, foam that's right there at the beach uh, gets highly concentrated, that neurotoxin and can be a problem. Uh, it gets concentrated in the tissues of shellfish uh, because they're filter feeders. And then it uh, becomes aerosolized as the wind and waves kick it up. And it can actually travel over a mile inshore. Uh, so even if you're nowhere near close to the beach, you might still <clears throat> get a little tickle in your throat or your eyes watering and be affected by that neurotoxin. And it happens here in Southwest Florida, but there's other places around the world that also have similar kind of phenomenon from other species. What I
1: love about uh, marine science, I mean, um, typically you ask the student, uh, okay, we're doing marine science. What are we going to study? And they'll say fish or coral or something. But you just said hydrophobic. I mean, we're talking chemistry here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's really neat. Like I've been to some museums and the marine archeology span exhibit, exhibits are amazing. Like the redox reactions and all that sort of stuff. There's so many different paths that you can take when we're talking marine sciences. So got, that begs a question, what are the sort of things that you guys teach? I mean, obviously you got the manatees and everything else, like, like in terms of, like, is it all just pure biology? Do you go down the, um, you know, the abiotic factors? Like what, what are the sort of programs that you run?
2: Yeah, most of the research programs that most have a life science focus. So it's not uh, specifically physical oceanography, uh, but we do have chemists on our staff. And so a lot of it's biochemistry. Uh, but they look at both organic and inorganic contaminants. So when the uh, Deepwater uh, Horizon spill happened, uh, some of our scientists were some of the first uh, able to sample those um, spills uh, affecting this area of uh, the Southeast part of Florida and uh, the United States. And uh, so we have a wide range of uh, interdisciplinary research programs from chemistry uh, to life sciences and beyond. We also have an ocean technology program and so that red tide I mentioned, uh, we actually send autonomous underwater vehicles, uh, basically ocean drones out uh, into the environment. And they're out there 24 hours a day, uh, sampling the uh, water column, uh, taking little sips of water and running it through a, uh, uh, a photo uh, colorimeter to see if they can detect the specific wavelength of those little microorganisms and report back that they've detected patches of this microorganism and it's a more cost-effective way than trying to go out with people in boats uh, all hours of the day and so we have an ocean technology robot program as well
1: yeah i was going to actually ask about that the um like I, I was fortunate enough to visit marine laboratories 2018 it was 2018 uh and that was amazing because i think you, just, you you gave me a little peek into that room where you're doing that the drones so the kids actually make the drones in some ways well their own little ones
2: yeah. So we have summer programs where we've had uh, kids come in and they actually get to assemble uh, out of PVC and uh, hobby motors and other pieces. They can actually assemble uh, their own remotely operated vehicles. And the technology for that, uh, things like Raspberry Pi and Arduinos and those little uh, kits uh, make it even more accessible and easier to uh, work with uh, than when we were uh, showing those to you, even though in 2018.
1: So when those kids arrive, do they know much about programming and that sort of thing? Or do you have to start from total scratch?
2: oh it's a mix yeah some of them have been doing uh, minecraft and coding already and some have no idea where they are or why they're even there so it's uh, <laughs> uh, one of the challenges with informal learning right because uh you know we don't know what we're going to get and uh, we take them all in and uh, try to uh, have them have a good experience i've got to ask what's your favorite program uh well what i specifically do here at moat um, well there's two things that i do now most of what i do is virtual learning uh, very much like you, where I talk to uh, students and teachers and audiences uh, interactively over Zoom or whatever technology they want to use to communicate. And uh, of course, we're famous here at Moat for our shark research, going all the way back to Genie, so the sharks programs are always great. Uh, we also have a, a literacy program called See Me Read, and those are fun too, where we've gotten permission from authors and publishers to animate the storybooks, uh, some STEM storybooks, and we can actually jump into the pages using green screen technology and read those along with the classroom, and then have some comprehension afterwards, and so those are fun, but the other thing that I'm doing more and more nowadays is lifelong learning. Actually start that up on Friday, I'll have a whole new cohort where we have adult educator uh, uh, students come to uh, Moat and uh, spend a couple of hours with us learning about marine science, and uh, then we get to tour them around and uh, have them talk with our researchers as well, so if you're ever in Florida uh, for uh, nine to ten weeks, you can take that course with me as well. That's and it's fun. available online in a kind of abbreviated fashion. So if you're interested in that technology or that information, you can take our Endless Oceans online course. Oh, that'd, that'd be so much
1: fun. What I love, also love the work you do is actually do a lot of work with a lot of museums and cultural organizations around North America and beyond uh, through the CILC as well, I believe. And, uh, and that, I mean, I must say, it's one of those organizations that gets to hang out with you occasionally. You've really been you really have cut your teeth with this distance learning thing for, for a while. How did you fall into distance learning in the first place?
2: Yeah, so I actually started back at Mode in 2001. Uh, it's hard to believe sometimes. And that was a very early days. Uh, it was almost really before the internet uh, writ large uh, got uh, underway with uh, video conferencing at least. And so back then we were using high-speed ISDN phone lines. And uh, even before that, uh, if we go back in history, we talk about marine archeology. span uh, Moat got its start with distance learning with uh, Dr. Bob Ballard. Uh, he was the gentleman who discovered the resting location of the RMS Titanic back in 1985. And uh, that kind of spurred him uh, to develop a distance learning program called the Jason Project, which has nothing to do with me, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, it has to do with the uh, Argonaut of myth and legend. He named his remotely operated vehicle uh, the Jason. And uh, he would go to these far flung locations around the world the Galapagos, Belize, the Mediterranean, Alaska, and uh, beam back his adventures via satellite. And he would take teachers and students along with him. he would call them his Argonauts. And uh, they would uh, do that for a short period of time, usually during our spring uh, time. And students would come to Moat by the busload to see these satellite-based uh, broadcasts. And then that kind of uh, lit a fire under some folks here at Moat to see if we could start developing our own in-house distance learning program. So in the 90s, Mode actually partnered with Nickelodeon and MCI and a couple of other organizations to start offering uh, that video conferencing experience over those ISDN phone lines. And that became known as c track And so that's the name of our program, c And uh, those are the uh, programs that we offer mostly to K through 12 audiences. Uh, in the early days, we had a partnership between our local botanical gardens, our local school district, and NASA to deliver interactive STEM content to classrooms around the area and uh, to the state of Florida, and then eventually the other folks in other locations who were starting to experiment with this technology also started to contact us, so we worked with Schenectady, New York, and some other locations uh, in the early days to offer interactive video conferencing, and uh, that's when I came on board back in 2001. Um, I had my biology uh, studies from the University of South Florida that uh, I was working on, and then uh, that uh, intersected nicely with the technology that I've always been interested in and also education. So it's a nice mixture of science, education, and technology. And uh, I get to do all three of those uh, as well as I'll get to hang out with sharks and manatees as well.
1: That's fantastic. And I, know I also do a lot of work with um, teachers as well, I believe. I'm sorry? I know you also do a lot of work with teachers too.
2: Yep, so we do some professional development opportunities for teachers locally. And uh, I'm involved with a couple of um, organizations like the National Marine Educators Association and the National Association for Interpretation, where we offer uh, opportunities for teachers and educators to learn more about the research that we do here at Moat.
1: What are some of the common misconceptions kids might have about the work you do or even the sea itself?
2: Yeah, what are some common misconceptions? Well, there's still a lot of misconceptions about our friends, the sharks, yes. and of course, there in Australia, you all are uh, dealing with that uh, always in the news. A lot of people think they are fearsome, tootham creatures, and uh, Dr. Eugenie Clark, early on, as well as our research since then, are trying to dispel a lot of the myths and misconceptions about sharks. Uh, of course, they're usually apex predators in the environment. They're atop of most food chains, but not always. In South Africa, uh, even great white sharks have to be afraid because the uh, orcas go after them and uh, will actually eat them down there. And so maybe in Australia, what you need is more killer whales or orcas in your waters <laughs> to help uh, if you're worried about the great whites, uh, what we call the uh, great whites. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of still misconceptions about the ocean uh, based uh, uh, probably from that movie Jaws back in the 1970s. Uh, which instilled a lot of fear. But actually, sharks have a lot more to fear from us than we do from them. Millions and millions of sharks are killed each year. Uh, a lot of times that's for the uh, fin trade. Uh, the shark fin soup, of course, is still a delicacy in a lot of uh, countries around the world, and uh, it's kind of a wasteful practice. And uh, a lot of sharks are also facing habitat destruction and a loss of their uh, natural diets through the collapse of various fisheries. So uh, if we lose the sharks, it's kind of a knock on effect throughout the ecosystem. And we end up losing other species as well. Yeah. And there's so a, a
1: controversial thing that happens. Like down this way is a controversial thing around the beaches. Uh, there's a um, shark nets out just out the back of the beach. And some of them have been in place for many, many years. But of course, when you have nets, you have bycatch. <laughs> and there's a lot of it. And uh, there's a lot of questions around this. So they, I think they're playing around with acoustic things and various bits and pieces. It's... Um, it's hard because, I mean, the public's used to the idea of being able to jump in the water and not getting eaten. But the reality is, as you well know, you're probably not gonna get eaten. Just, and that's
2: but, another misconception is but, we don't think about it when you're in Sydney Harbor or other places that, that that's actually a, a wilderness experience. If I dropped you in the Outback or in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge or in other places, you would recognize that immediately as a wilderness experience. But the minute your feet touch the ocean, you're connected to the whole world of wildlife that's out there, and uh, even though it may seem very urban, you're actually in a wilderness experience the moment your you toes touch the water.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, mind you, down here we like we learn about yeah, you know, they're crepuscular feeders. Don't hang around the estuaries around dawn and dusk. They're rather hungry at that time, and you look rather tasty. Uh, and the, and the reality, is unfortunately there, there are attacks, but they are few and far between. And, and I think the standard thing, shtick you would say would be. Well, crossing the street is rather dangerous <laughs> with the cars, <laughs> but yeah.
2: yeah. And the relative risk is pretty low, but the yeah. uh, obvious uh, drama, uh, drama of a shark encounter like that is so severe that uh, instills that fear in us. And uh, Florida is actually the shark bite uh, capital of the world off our East Coast. The uh, Sharks migrate by the thousands up and down the East Coast of Florida. And during certain times of year, it's a good surfing environment as well. So we get a lot of uh, ankle bites and other encounters with uh, especially uh, black tip sharks here in Florida.
1: Well, looking at the, um, like from a STEM perspective, too, and even just looking at how tracking happens and whatnot. It's interesting how just when you talk about migration, I mean, we we're talking great whites before. Just you could see these loops that they do between the Western Australia out to South Africa and back again. It's really neat to seeing the tracking of these things and just genuinely how far they go. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, and that's one of the things that we do with our scientists whenever possible. Some of them work with an outfit called OSEarch. search and uh, when they're out in the field and uh, having these adventures, if they get close enough to shore, uh, we'll try to connect with them via video conferencing and make those opportunities available for classrooms to learn directly from that experience. So this group, OSearch, they have this remarkable vessel that they can bring out and actually bring a, shore, a shark alongside the vessel. Uh, they have a special platform where they can gently uh, bring it up after a few moments of uh, inspecting it and collecting tissue samples and uh, maybe putting a tag on it. They'll lower it back into the water and the shark swims away unharmed. But it allows them to get to pelagic species uh, like the great white and bull sharks and hammerheads and mako sharks that we don't normally get an opportunity to work with in a, in a way that is safe, both for the researchers and the animals. And then we get lots and lots of information about their pathways. And if you go to Osearch's website, they have a great uh, number of telemetry um, uh, data sets available for classrooms to use.
1: Now, a genuine bucket list for me, one day, who knows? Whale sharks, Northwestern yeah. Australia. My gosh, they're cool. <laughs> it's yeah, not just it
2: there, Niggaloo they're all over the place. Is that right?
1: Sorry? Niggaloo Reef, am I saying that right? Yeah, Ningaloo Reef, yes. It's less known. Everyone thinks about the Great Barrier Reef, and for good reason. But the Northwestern Australia has a genuinely awesome Ningaloo Reef. It is it's amazing, and I've never been there. I've just seen photos. But uh, that's a one day. But I believe they're in um, oh, just off Mexico as well and a few other different places. Yeah, um, yep.
2: Belize and uh, the Yucatan Peninsula. That's uh, If you can imagine a world map in the Yucatan Peninsula in Cuba, there's that little strait uh, uh, between them. And uh, the fish come up through the Caribbean Sea, uh, tuna fish species and uh, broadcast spawn and dump a lot of eggs into the environment. And uh, whale sharks will show up over 400 at a time. Wow. Uh, in areas around the Yucatan at certain times of the year, usually around April and May, and uh, that's a great opportunity for our scientists to study them up close. And that's become a great ecotourism opportunity for that area as well, uh, focusing on a sustainable uh, ecotourism business instead of uh, necessarily a uh, uh, an industry which uh, more traditionally would just harvest um, fishes.
1: Yeah, and it's funny how like we—I we, mean, this has very much t- talked to a, a shark. Con- Came a shark conversation in some ways, but hey, this is what you guys do. I'm <laughs> just thinking about all the different types. I mean, I've never seen a basking shark, never happened. Uh, I have, however, gone for a dive around Sydney Harbour with Wobby gongs. So, those people overseas, Wobby Gongs are quite Me, like that's this. on
2: my bucket list,
1: <laughs> dude. They're so cool. Think of like this uh, if you okay, if you're listening on and you're going, What's a Wobby Gong? Think of like this, uh, two meters, so six foot shark, uh, also. And it's got camo, camouflage all over it. And like these frilly looking things in front of its mouth. And they generally just hang on the bottom. And they're kind of like, you know, cuddly and don't, they're not, they're not as true. And that's actually like, oh, there you go. Ha, ah, there you go. So we also have a visual feed here coming from Jason because Jason does distance learning. And there's your tassel wobbling on. It looks great.
2: Yep. And uh, yeah, apparently they're quite uh, interesting little animals, uh, even though they don't move around a lot. Uh, they kind of there's some evidence that they'll wiggle and waggle their tail to try to attract prey and uh, just beautiful specimens too with that camouflage
1: oh uh, there's amazing um dive sites Sorry, i'm a diver uh northwest rocks uh, southwest rocks <laughs> it's strange yes it's southwest rocks it's where you come out of a sea cave or it's really a sea tunnel into a gutter about 25 meters deep and you're up below side to side you are surrounded by gray nurse sharks these are the ones that became critically endangered because they had lots of teeth and therefore people thought they were eating people and they don't they're like puppies <laughs> they very much are and it was just a cool experience to just come out of this cave and then suddenly they're everywhere around you it's wild and cool um, now, that's awesome. So I guess so. if you had um, a bunch of uh, teachers in front of you, and they're looking to really start to lean in into doing some marine sciences, just a bit of education around this, what are some first steps that you'd suggest for them? And let's say they're uh, middle school.
2: Yeah? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was just talking to a scientist, and uh, she's the head of our coral reef research program. And uh, she said that she actually spends 80% of her time writing. Uh, she's writing grants and trying to get funding, which you don't always think about if you're going to be a marine biologist, that writing and maths are going to be hugely important. So uh, actually learning PowerPoint, Excel, and Word are fundamentally important uh, aspects of becoming any kind of scientist uh, in order to communicate the research that you're going to ultimately study. Um, and if you're especially interested in the life sciences, you know, take every advantage and opportunity you can to actually work with animals and so if you have an opportunity to go to a summer camp uh, at an aquarium or a zoo, uh, like you might have there in Australia, uh, yeah, that's a great opportunity to learn about those uh, kind of creatures. And then if uh, you're in high school or what we would call high school or upper uh, grade levels or in college, uh, you want to work with animals, uh, try uh, helping out at a veterinarian, getting a job there, because even if you're working with a seal or a sea lion, a dolphin, a sea turtle, uh, oftentimes working with cats and dogs is a great uh, opportunity to learn which side is the bitey end and uh, what <laughs> comes out the other side and what to do with it. And so uh, working at a vet is a great experience and uh, much more approachable and available to a lot more people, uh, big animals and small. And then uh, like I said, uh, learning some of those basic communication skills are absolutely essential too. And then here in the States, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here in the States we have uh, research experience for undergraduate students when they're at the college or university level. And so we have uh, lots and lots of students come through our uh, marine lab, uh, usually in our summertime, uh, getting uh, direct hands on experience. And some of those are paid opportunities, some of them are for free. And uh, I imagine those kinds of opportunities are available at uh, university systems uh, in your country as well. Yeah, oh,
1: it's amazing. And by the way, hats off to any vets listening on in. I've got so much respect that you actually understand the structure and function of multiple species. That's just wild. It's mm-hmm. Hard enough learning a human, but that's yeah. my gosh, <laughs> so so cool. Uh, wise words, absolutely. So, how do people get in touch with you? And you know, so uh,
2: they can go to mote.org, mote.org, and uh, that is the website for Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium. And uh, if you go to slash sea trek, which I'm sure Ben will put into the show notes for us if those are available, uh, S E A T R E K. Uh, you'll find out more information about the distance learning opportunities we have. And of course, Ben also mentioned the Center for Interactive Learning and Collaboration, CILC.org. You can search for us on their uh, website as well, and uh, you'll find content. And one of the new things that we're offering, which might be of especially interest uh, for your audience over there uh, on the other time zone of the world for me, is that we're actually offering a new series of programs that'll be after our aquarium closes. So right now, uh, Ben and I are, are recording this. It's... Uh, uh around 5:30 my time what is it pm uh my time and it's what there
1: is this 9:30 in the morning right now
2: for me yeah so okay. if your class or audience wants to connect with me at 9:30 in the morning um we now have programs available uh i'm going into the aquarium galleries after the uh, aquarium closes all of our guests have exited so we'll have it all to ourselves i'm calling it good night at the aquarium so it's nighttime here and so we're going to look at the animals as uh, it becomes sleepy time for some of them and wake up time for others, like our octopus, which actually becomes a little bit more active as the uh, lights go out.
1: That's really cool. Because I mean, I know of other places that actually you know, I'm sorry, we have no light. We can't do anything. But in this case, it's an advantage.
2: Interesting. Yep. yep. And so all the guests have left. And so I have much better uh, reception with my Wi-Fi uh, for the areas where I need that. And uh, I can go around the entire gallery and have it all to ourselves as we explore that space. Oh, that's awesome. Well, well done. And hey,
1: well done with the work that you've been doing. We I mean, know you've been at Moat since 2001. You've influenced a lot of people. You've taught a lot of people around marine sciences and hopefully inspired some people as well. And I reckon you have. <laughs>
2: totally. Yeah, thank you so much for being such a partner on all this uh, over the years too. It's been great uh, collaborating with you over CILC and other adventures. 100%, I'll have to come over to the States again. Or maybe I could come visit you and finally see a platypus. Hey,
1: that's time, and you know what that means—both of us. I've only seen them in captivity. I'd love to see them in the wild. That sounds like a great plan.
2: Or even a saltwater or freshy crocodile, like you have over there. That would be great too. Yeah, oh my gosh, they are—they're very cool. Yeah.
1: Oh well, we'll tell you what—we're going to take this offline because we could totally chat back yes. <laughs> about that sort of thing. But uh, look, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, I hope to catch you very soon.
0: Thank you. We hope you've been enjoying the Physics Ed podcast. We love making science make sense. Why don't you book us for a science show or workshop in your school? If you're outside of Australia, you can connect with us via a virtual excursion. See our website for more.
1: there we go we just heard from a really good friend of mine jason robert shaw who does love his distance learning but trust me he really knows marine sciences he really does so go on over to their website head on over to mot.org just go to moat marine laboratory and aquarium and find out about their manatees their sharks their sea turtles otters all sorts of things and how you might get in touch with jason to run a distance learning program well worth your time trust me he really 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 is good about what he does so look i hope you enjoyed this particular episode i certainly did it was like catching up with an old friend of mine it really was and in the green when we definitely did have a bit of a chat either side of this because you know we're actually good mates and uh, i was so happy for him to join us so look i hope you enjoyed this it's enough of this particular episode but as usual more are coming up you've been hanging out with me ben newson from physics education this is the physics ed podcast and i hope to catch you another time <laughs>
0: You've been listening to another Physics Ed podcast. We're excited about science. Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book, and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F I Z Z I C S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. aeon.net.au